Welcome to N20XX. This series takes the listener, year by year, into the future. From 2040 to 2195. If you like emerging tech, ecotech, futurism, permaculture, apocalyptic survival scenarios, and disruptive science, sit back and enjoy short stories that showcase my research into how the future may play out. Tanner watches one of her tennis matches on the screen. This room is tiny, even for hospice. But this is just a visit. She won't be here for long even if the experimental treatment pulls her back from the grave. She went through treatment for cancer 10 years ago, and last year, when she felt a growth in her armpit, she ignored it. She didn't want to fight cancer again. Also, she wanted her kids to have some of Benny's money after she passes on. Her private insurance found some viable reason to kick her off, the last time she had cancer. Her kids deserve the two houses, the yacht, and investments. By the time a doctor had a look at her, the cancer had spread throughout her body. She only had weeks to live. Her doctor told her about an experimental treatment she could volunteer for, all expenses paid and a promise to make her last days as painless as possible. Even her funeral would be paid for. So here she is in a little room. She holds her photo album in her lap open to the photo of Josh and Lynn at the beach house. It has always been one of her favorites. It looks like an old Eddie Bauer magazine ad. The promises of youth adorned with fine wool and sunlight. No use setting framed pictures around this room. Her son Josh was exposed to the media weapon. He still goes to work but he twitches and loses focus on the conversation when he and Tanner vid. He lost that aura of innocence. With time, he should get the best treatment and recover. Her daughter Lynn says she wasn't exposed. What are the odds? It was always so hard to pry Lynn's eyes from screens. When footage of one of Tanner's matches shows her kids in the stands, Lynn is always looking down at a foldable, oblivious. At 69, Tanner is the youngest of what she has overheard the staff call the first group. She takes a walk in the afternoon. Her building houses the first group. The other buildings appear vacant as far as she can tell. Mountain ridges stand tall all around. When she went on a walk yesterday, she saw a buck. Marvin rests in a fully cushioned rocking chair watching a screen that plays an episode of Good Times. The TVs here never play commercials. At age 74, he gets a haircut once a week and likes the feel of his afro cut short, small mercies after two years of chemo. This room is larger than the one he rented. It was only big enough for a couch and TV and could turn into an oven in the day and an icebox at night. They told him if he took this deal, he could only use the internet with a chaperone. But they said they could treat the pain, and they didn't lie about that. He knows he isn't all there anymore, but the pain is way over there, trying so hard but unable to reach him, instead of right up in his face, screaming. The building, one of many, reminds him of the hotel he worked at in Baltimore, with long halls and many floors. He doesn't know how many floors, but it's a lot. Every window he's seen out of has mountains and trees. Mountains and trees, 
That may be one of those VR effects. Probably not, but it may be. Someone touches his arm. The face of that Indian woman stares at him. She speaks loudly. He may not hear, but he can feel her voice on his cheek. Nurses bring in a wheelchair. Dr. Bora, middle-aged with her dark hair in a bun, walks Tanner into the gallery. The shape of the room reminds Tanner of the cafeteria in the building where Benny once worked, grand but unadorned. Beds and medical equipment fill the room. She suddenly wants to pull back. She wants to walk backward and leave this room. She begins to shake as if she is overcome by cold. Bora takes her hand. It will be okay. Tanner always operated by reason, feelings be damned. She makes herself follow Bora and lie in the bed. She closes her eyes and tries to calm herself as a nurse hooks up a drip line and sensors. Her fear makes knotted aches throughout her body. Clinicians lead other elderly to beds. The other patients seem further gone than she. But it's an illusion. Her cancer has spread all over. Many of these patients will live longer than her even if they look over a hundred. It feels like mercury forces its way into her veins. It begins to hurt. Parts of her insides pulsate. Though it's only a drip line, it feels like the solution is being pushed into her, pressurizing her from within. A buzzer goes off near her head and a nurse runs over. Are you in pain? She nods. The nurse calls an anesthesiologist who gives her a shot. In the 48 hours that follow, she mentally checks out. This is the end. The house of cards that life is built of must come tumbling down at some point. They strap her down. She hardly remembers any of it. When she wakes up in her room she can't find any drip line or tubes down her nose. Her body feels in one piece. She remembers who she is. She doesn't even have a headache. Taking a chance, she tries to sit up. No problem. When she touches her face, the texture feels weird, tiny bumps, way too many tiny bumps. Marvin has been in a lot of hospital rooms. This one is like an auditorium, and everything is new, nothing like the inner city hospitals, crowded, cramped, and full of noise. They have him lying in a bed. He can see other old people in other beds. When a doctor or nurse walks somewhere, one of the pieces of hospital equipment stands and follows. Robots, robots, with so many people in the world, is there enough room for all the robots? A male nurse comes up to his bed and talks to him while he hooks Marvin up to a drip bag. The man's lips keep making the same shapes over and over and he squints at Marvin. Marvin says, I can't hear you. A woman, maybe as old as Marvin, comes up to the bed, scribbles on a foldable and shows it to him, are you in pain? Do you have any discomfort? Marvin nods then switches to shaking his head. I'm okay. I'm good. I'm good. Instead of taking him back to the room, they keep him there for what must be days. They shut out all the overhead lights and place a small light by each bed. 
what was an itching continues to sink deeper and deeper into him. During his chemo, pain showed him all the inner regions of his body like a devil giving him an extended tour of all the locations in a vast hidden kingdom. The itching he feels now visits, one after the next, all those locations. The itching heats up and burns. He tries to stop from crying out. People stand over him and one taps a needle then gives him a shot. When he comes to, he's in bed in the room they gave him. Two TV characters talk to each other on the screen. The door is open and someone is out in the hole. How? He can hear them ever so slightly. He hears the tiny noises of human voices. The TV too. He can make out the sounds from the TV. What madness is this? How is it possible? They flew his chair in this morning and now Ed lets his head sink back on the headrest. No matter where it is in the world, his chair smells the same. Home is where his chair is. He smiles wryly. Alto enters and with a squeak of latex gloves, he hooks Ed up to the machine. Are these apartments to your liking? Ed says, yes, they're fine. On the otherwise transparent screen stretching the wall in front of him, a blinking icon containing an 8 lets him know how many times his wife has tried to reach him. Alto hands him a paper cup of syrup that he swallows. The dull ache in his fingers and toes fades. He says, news. The TV comes on showing an avatar, his personal news aggregator. It reads his biometrics and learns to limit the kind of news that has bored him in the past. It must know opera does not interest him because when a famous opera singer was gunned down last year, it told him what law enforcement was doing about it and did not give him a history of the artist's life and all that sentimental nonsense that took over non-aggregated news for a few days. If Ed didn't know any better, he would think the aggregator reads his mind or at least snoops on him when it isn't supposed to. It changed its looks a lot when he first started watching it but has settled on an older, stately woman persona. Turn, eye-tracking tech makes its image look 3D. Video clips play next to it as it speaks. The dominant story in national news is the aftermath of the media attacks. An estimated 89,000 Americans die each day, roughly 11 times the normal rate. While suicides are going down, death by drug overdose, starvation, and accidents are going up. Ed looks around the room. The same team that designed his Honolulu retreat did these rooms, he can tell. Another team might have left some mountain stone exposed where the interior had been carved out. The walls here are long strips of bleached wood panels. Groceries are closed. Utilities are spotty in most locations. Emergency services are lacking. There are not enough able people to deal with the bodies. The auto kiosks distributing Pexin have improved things but people still lack daily essentials. A couple in Minneapolis broke into a pet store and stole three rabbits. A journalist who followed them reported the couple cooked the rabbits on a portable grill. In Marfa, Texas an understaffed police station was broken into, and all its confiscated drugs, guns, and money were stolen. Alto leaves the room. In comes a standalone carrying a lunch tray. 
Ah, this is one of the new models. As tall as a human, its center of gravity sits much lower, about where the knees would be on a human. A lot of standalones are made to do one thing. Ed can imagine this robot tiling a floor, baking a cake, and bathing an elderly person all on the same day. It fits the tray onto the holder on Ed's chair and then leaves. Of course, it's the software that counts. Good software can turn a common household toy into a cutting-edge robot. A terrorist organization called the Tucker Group has taken over the city of Hoxie, Kansas. The white supremacists have chased 10% of the population out of town. They have taken over the police department and the town hall. The salad is tasty. Ed heard that as more produce is grown by aeroponics, some chefs filter rainwater through soil and misted it on the plants to add land-grown flavoring. The tiny hint of soil makes Ed suspect his chef has been doing just that. It does taste good in a nostalgic way, but would younger generations associate the flavor with plants warmed by the sun and the long days of summer? Most businesses are closed but one kind of business may never open again the local bank and even bank machines that can be found in most grocery stores. The long-disputed Fed wallet will start rolling out its services. Ed stops chewing and knocks the tray, causing gravy to spill off the plate. He stares wildly at the screen. When President Hunt touted the advantages of a federal cryptocurrency most people didn't believe she would go through with it even if the House and Senate would allow her to. Banks are big money and having most of their services rendered obsolete made Hunt an enemy of banks long before she ran for president. Blockchain software will maintain the integrity of transactions and holdings. Unlike cryptocurrencies, users of FedWallet must join with valid IDs. Using money for illegal purposes will easily be traced. Those who join can opt for smart tax withholding, so they won't need to file taxes. Alto runs in and pulls Ed back in the chair. Ed's face burns almost purple. Veins stand out on his neck. He murmurs in disbelief, they can't do that. We have people keeping that from happening. Will this financial tsunami cause a market collapse? AI that will scan the new blockchain for signs of money laundering, tax evasion, and identity theft worry law-abiding citizens who see their privacy compromised. This new program includes a suite of financial services, mortgages, loans, retirement, rents, investing. If Ed ever looked at Alto, he might notice the look of deep satisfaction on Alto's face. Bora looks over a foldable her colleague holds out for her. He looks like a good candidate. Send this to admissions. She signs with her finger and the colleague shuffles away. Turning, she sees Ed standing by her office door. She nods to him and begins walking toward him. Mr. Cruz, how nice to finally meet you face to face. He bows. Doctor. She says, I can give you a tour now if you like. Sounds good to me. You've had trouble with the Russian media attack. She leads him down the hall. Yes. Most of our staff have gone on leave. We've recruited new staff from near and far. In my free time, I watch shows in Hindi, not popular American TV, so I was spared. 
It does help that this facility is so far from any city or town. Everyone here is in media isolation, now. He says, good. She opens the door for him into a lab where rows of automated equipment inject tiny samples into tiny receptacles. What your medical scout thought was a cancer is, in fact, a virus. She taps on a screen attached to a van-sized machine made of small, stainless steel parts. The screen lights up. Here is the virus, the way it was when we got it. Ed snorts and leans closer. Okay. Bora swipes to show the next picture. When the virus infects a cell, it causes it to build a new cell within itself. The original cell destroys itself in the process. The new cell breaks out of the remains. The new cell operates like the original with the exception that it also produced copies of the virus. Once infecting an organism, the virus spreads rapidly. That's why the people that found this thought it was cancer. Ed says, and the new cells are young. Bora says, yes and no. Deficiencies that the original acquired over time can carry over into the new cell. Ed gazes down at her. My scout said this is the next CRISPR. Bora can't help but bounce with enthusiasm. Yes, exactly. It has brought us halfway there. She swipes on the screen. We are working on a variant that we hope can hard edit the genes of a grown adult. Gene therapy is either temporary or we need to edit the genes of an embryo to make the changes last. Ed smiles faintly. Which is illegal. Bora says, yes, most certainly, and for good reason. Ed says, I was told you already started testing. Bora swallows hard. Yes, we've got 20 people in your hospice center, and we started a series of injections that should take a few weeks to complete. Ed wrinkles his nose. I'd like to see them. Bora shakes her head. Oh. Yes. I can. We can go to the observation center. Ed says, I've already been there. I'd like to visit the cabins. Ed can tell Bora is unsure and worried as she leads him down the hall of the fifth floor but turns around and heads back to the elevator and down the hall of the fourth floor. She swipes through profile after profile on her tablet. This one is ready, I believe. She taps her knuckles on the door. It's open, a gravelly voice says with a black accent. She pushes the door open, and she and Ed enter. Marvin sits on the edge of his bed. A couple of shoe boxes on the bed contain stones and stones of all different shapes and colors are laid out on the bed. Bora says, Marvin do you remember me? Yes, I do. She says, what are those? Marvin says, I collect rocks. These aren't all my rocks, but some of my favorites. Bora smiles approval. Oh wow. Marvin, this is Ed Cruz. He founded this facility. Marvin gets a strong feeling of recognition, but he has no memory of the weird-looking white guy leaning over like a branch in the wind. Nice to meet you. Ed watches Marvin. Bora clasps her hands and Marvin slowly puts the igneous rock he was holding on the bed. 
Ed steps around to look at Marvin from a different angle. Boris says, Marvin here, is 74 years old. Ed says, really? Yes. Marvin says, I know it looks bad. A couple of days ago my cancer cropped up everywhere. It's not comfortable but did you know I got my hearing back? Most of it. Marvin's flesh looks like it has curdled on a minute scale. The cauliflower texture covers him, even his lips and eyelids. Ed says, I would have guessed that he's in his 60s. Bora nods vigorously. Yes. Bora brings Ed to Tanner's room. Inside, Tanner vids with her daughter. On the screen, the daughter looks like a dorkier version of what Tanner looked like when she was young. Tanner looks over at them. Dear, I have company, I'll have to call back. The chaperone, a guy who could pass as a high school student, nods to Bora then leaves. Ed says, you know we can get software to watch for any data breaches. Bora says, yes, but I feel having chaperones remind the older volunteers not to talk about the project. Ed says, I suppose. Tanner smiles at Ed, Mr. Cruz, I never dreamed I'd meet you in person. Ed bows. Ms. Clemens, my mother is a huge fan. I remember seeing some of your matches on TV when I was a kid. Bora says. And how are you feeling? Tanner places her hands on her legs. I feel better. I can't believe I'm saying it. The lump under here has shrunk. She places a hand under her arm. Bora says. Does the skin texture bother you? Tanner says, it feels somewhat uncomfortable. Please understand that I'm deep in the woods already. Overall, the discomfort has lessened. I asked for a reduction in painkillers. Ed cuts in. Why? Tanner says, why ask for less painkillers? Ed says, yes. Tanner says, I like having my wits about me if I can. Bora introduces Ed to seven other patients, each given the same treatment. Twenty patients show signs of textured flesh and reverse aging. Ed leaves Reprieve Hospice and goes back to dealing with saving his companies when so much of his staff call in sick, many never to return to work again. He tries to reduce the loss caused by failing banks and the first time in history that Uncle Sam won't save them. Bora gets a late-night call. The man on the other end says, we're losing one. Bora gets out of bed. Who is it? He says, Mary Bridges. She searches for a pair of pants. Try to keep her alive. He says, I just got word, another one needs critical care. By the time Bora enters the building, five patients have pressed alarm buttons. In the middle of the night, they wake up and move the patients to the gallery. Most are confused but compliant. Whether they can walk or not, they are brought in wheelchairs then placed in beds and examined. By the next morning, two have died. Autopsies reveal that the virus caused the deaths. Half the others show signs of new, unstable stages of the growth. 
They suffer from internal bleeding, overwhelming pain, and in some cases organ failure. Thank you for listening. My landing page is solomeshan.com. There you can find the companion website to this podcast that includes a timeline and illustrations.